on today's episode, Running for Cardiovascular Health with Brady Holmer. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Brady Holmer has joined um, the now two-person club. Ian Griffiths was the first to uh, be interviewed where he's so passionate and answers his questions with such detail that I had to split this into two parts. <laughs> so this is part one of my interview with Brady Holmer. He is uh, studying his PhD in cardiovascular physiology, very passionate about exercise and heart health and as you'll tell, he's he's a runner, he's an endurance athlete, and loves diving into the science of this this sort of stuff. Um, I'll include all his links. He's got a, a Substack, he has um, his Twitter and his website. He also has a podcast, which is um, Science and Chill. We dive into a ton of patron questions and a ton about cardiovascular health. What sort of running durations, intensities, frequencies, um, all of these sort of parameters um, and whether it's good, is there certain parameters that are bad for heart health? Is there any changes in the body, um, whether good or bad when it comes to exercising to do with the heart, but also like the vascular system, so your arteries. I love talking about this topic and it was a very popular one amongst the patrons. They wrote a ton of questions, so we dive into all of those. I did mention um, a few weeks ago that I will be doing weekly episodes, but since this is now a two-parter, I'll release this one within the week. I'll release this one on Friday and we'll have a fresh new interview or a fresh new episode the following Monday and we'll continue weekly from then. I think if I end up doing a two-parter in the future with uh, one guest, I'll then break it or spread it into the one week. I think that's pretty good because I've got a, a bunch of interviews that I need to get through <laughs> and of uh, my um, scheduled list is quickly stacking up. So I have episodes scheduled out for the next six weeks or so and really excited to get them out to you. So I don't want to waste any more time. Don't want to delay it any longer. Um, on the book side of things, uh, as you have may you may or may not know, um, throughout Lent, I have this business goal of reaching a certain part of writing the book where when it gets to the end of Lent, I have the two main parts, the rough, the rough draft complete, and I'll send it off to editors um, before I start working on part three. It is really close to getting done. I have um, in the process next week of just getting through some final edits 
and just doing kind of like a once over um, sort of thing before I send it off. So I'm really happy with how this is going. I'm getting really excited and part three won't usually take that long. It's delving into injury specific stuff, which well within my wheelhouse have ton of research already on it. I'm super, super happy with how it's going. It seems like everyone's quite excited to get their hands on the book. I know the clients that I'm talking to and the injury chats that I'm um, jumping on, people are excited for the book and I'm excited as well. I'll keep you guys updated because I still need to do all the fun stuff like um, the book cover or the title, subtitle, um, images, all that sort of stuff. I'll require some of your help, some of your wisdom and um, input. But enough about the book, let's dive into part one with Brady Holmer. I should also mention um, just before we dive in that because it is part two, we sort of end the interview um, a little bit like I tried to to cut it off um, so that it kind of makes sense, clears up a couple of questions, but it is quite abrupt, just so you know. Brady Holmer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Brody, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and I'm excited to talk about running. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and the topic itself seems extremely popular through the patrons coming up with a ton of questions. But before we dive into that list, um, can you maybe just introduce yourself and your career, both um, academically and athletically? Sure thing. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and start with sort of my academic training, and then I can talk a little bit about my athletic background. So currently, um, or I guess I'll start from the beginning. That's more logical, I guess. I, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in exercise science. Uh, I received that from a little little school, I guess, called Northern Kentucky University. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, went to NKU, and I, uh, I studied exercise science there. I actually also ran cross-country and track, and I can talk a little bit about that after this. But um, So I got my degree in exercise science there, and you know, really, initially, I think in my career, I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. So obviously, I was very, very involved in sports early on in life. I played basketball. I was then you know, transitioned to becoming sort of like this full-time runner in high school and college. And so I was very interested in sports performance and thought maybe I wanted to do something regarding athletic training, maybe personal training, um, sports performance-wise. And then as I sort of progressed through my undergraduate career, I sort of became aware, I think is the best way to put it, that there was this whole world of research out there, clinical research, applied research, and things like that. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm a first-generation college student, so you know neither of my parents attended college, and so I didn't really have a, a very great understanding, sort of, of what you could do with uh, an advanced degree or even like a, a bachelor's degree. And so I um I became aware that you know through my professors and other faculty at NKU that this whole world of research kind of existed, and I really started to enjoy it. So I got involved in some some smaller projects. Um, NKU wasn't a huge research institution, but I got involved in some smaller projects as an undergrad. Um, I did one over the summer where I helped a professor with a uh, an energy drink study that he was doing. He was actually looking at how energy drinks influenced cardiovascular variables during exercise. So we looked at VO2 during exercise, heart rate, blood pressure, and things like that, um, which I found, you know, it was such a fun project to work on. And I even got to do some some data analysis, and then eventually I was on a publication, which was which was pretty cool, you know, before I was even in graduate school. Um, something very unique, kind of. And then the next summer. With another professor, I applied for this tiny little summer undergraduate research fellowship and did what we called at NKU a capstone project, essentially kind of like a thesis um, that you would do as a doctoral student, but it's sort of obviously kind of less intense, less rigorous. Um, so we put together this project. We started looking at how 
whether like uh, blood, uh, sorry, apple cider vinegar or exercise could help with blood glucose after a meal in people with diabetes. So there's a tiny little um, place down the road where um, elderly individuals and people, some who had diabetes, would kind of just go for like recreational activities. And we recruited from there. You know, we had a small sample size. It wasn't sort of a, a publishable study, but I did that as my capstone project. And that just um, allowed me to kind of see this whole process of designing a research study, conducting research, and really like, quote unquote, I guess, leading a research project on my own. And I found that really interesting. And so after that, I was like, wow, you know, I really like research. I find this fun. Um, I did an internship in an exercise physiology clinic where we did some stress testing. I really enjoyed that, but I decided that, you know, really in terms of job options and what would be available, um, I thought that getting an advanced degree, master's slash PhD would really kind of expand my options in. And I decided to then start applying to, to some grad schools after that. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I eventually received a fellowship and I started to attend the University of Florida. Um, and here now where I'm currently studying, about to finish actually, so hopefully um, graduating this August. I am studying cardiovascular physiology as my focus, so my degree is in applied physiology and kinesiology. I'm in the doctoral program here, and the lab that I'm a part of, we look at how exercise influences endothelial function. So I can maybe describe a little bit about what the endothelial, what endothelial function is. So um, in all of our blood vessels, we have this small layer within the inner lining of our blood vessels. It's called the endothelium, and it regulates vasodilation, vasoconstriction through the release of various molecules, um, nitric oxide kind of being one that maybe some people have heard of. Essentially, um, when you exercise, the endothelium is what responds and helps blood vessels to dilate, to, to increase blood flow in response to the increasing demands of oxygen and things like that. So our, our lab looks at how acute exercise and chronic exercise influence endothelial function. We have several studies going on um, some in you know cancer patients, some in just regular healthy adults, looking at sex differences in exercise responses to endothelial function. And another topic that I'm actually particularly interested in right now, and that's going to be the subject of my dissertation, is uh, how sleep deprivation actually affects endothelial function. So it's an area that I've become keenly interested in recently. Uh, we published a, a systematic review on that topic last year, which was really fun to do, kind of our COVID project since we couldn't do any uh, research in the lab. And um, yeah, so really interested in this topic of sleep now. And there's a lot of data that you know insufficient sleep is um, pretty bad for cardiovascular health. And we've done some studies in our lab showing that essentially pulling an all-nighter 24 hours without sleep will reduce endothelial function and then um, with my dissertation I've been looking at the effects in, in different populations and integrating some exercise into there so um, that's sort of my sort of my research academic background and then in addition to that just a few things that I've that I've dabbled in I've been trying to do a lot of science communication type stuff similar to what you're doing but um, you know I've started a podcast and I do a lot of writing on the side I'm really interested in in kind of all things related to health you know running endurance sports kind of being the main one but longevity um, sort of ketosis low carb diets um, anything you know in that space all very interesting to me and I write about those things a lot and sort of talk with people about those things um, so it's been pretty fun just to have this research focus but then expand kind of my interest to to all topics of like health and um, longevity and performance and and everything like that so um, that's a little bit of my academic background and athletically as I sort of brought up before I've pretty much just been a lifelong uh, endurance athlete but primarily a runner that's changed a little bit recently but I'm still I would 
characterize and identify as as a runner. Um, started running in high school and getting pretty serious about it, and then um, attended you know NKU, which is a smaller but a Division One institution. Um, in ran cross country and track there for four years. Had a great time. You know, it was just almost like being a professional athlete, other than having to go to class. But you know, you just get to kind of train and hang out with your with your running mates all day is it's pretty much living the life. Um, but I enjoyed my time there, and I ran, I ran 15, 16 in the 5K, um, 31, 46 in the 10K, and let's see, 8K PR. 8K is kind of a weird distance, but that's what we run in in cross country here. I ran uh, 25, 32, so you know, mediocre times, but you know, fairly, fairly okay, I guess. Um, the times that I'm proud of. Uh, but I continue to run to this day. I've I've done a half marathon. A few half marathons, one marathon actually. Um, I plan to do more, but some recent injuries have kind of prevented me from from training at a high level in the past couple of years. But I'm I'm definitely hoping to get back into that. Um, I do a lot of rides on the Peloton now, do some outdoor rides, but generally just a just a lot of endurance. I'm an endurance junkie. I love that stuff. And uh, recently, I've tried to uh, started deadlifting a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> if anybody, you know, if you followed me on Twitter. I, uh, I have recently been posting my, my deadlift form and asking for critiques and that has proven to be somewhat of a mistake because everybody seems to have a critique and sort of uh, knit to pick with my form. But it's been fun to learn because, you know, I'm really uh, not at an advanced stage in sort of uh, my knowledge in terms of how to lift probably, properly. Um, so it's been fun to kind of get, get feedback on Twitter and I'm really trying to, to improve upon my deadlift this year. That's one of the things that I've kind of set as a goal. So now it's more less focused on maybe how fast I can run and more so just how really fit I can be. And that's, that's been a fun thing to do also. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's, it's great to see like the, the recreational, like hobby passions and your academic passions just kind of collide. Cause obviously there will be a lot of um, transferability there and, you know, you'd get excited to train and also how you go in the, cardiovascular side of things and then see what the data is like with doing those sorts of things and the the benefits and all all that sort of carryover, which is nice. It's good to see. Um, And you can already tell the passion that you have with these particular topics. And like I said before, we've got a a ton of patron questions, which I want to go through the list for today. Uh, Usually what I do is I have a template that I like to see how the structure goes and then a couple of patron questions um, sprinkled in throughout there. But because the interest was so many, uh, was so big and they had so many questions come in, I thought for the vast majority of this particular episode, we'd just cover a bunch of those questions and just go through the list. But before we do that, can we just start off with the main benefits of cardiovascular exercise for for our heart and what the adaptations, what adaptations do occur and why cardiovascular exercise is so good for the heart, if at all. Um, maybe we can start off with that just as a generic kind of question just to to get us warmed up to this topic before we get into the specific questions. Yeah, for sure. So cardiovascular exercise, you know, obviously I think just in general it's probably, and I'm becoming even to believe this, despite my bias and, you know, because of all the data that are being published, probably one of the best tools that we have to promote sort of health and longevity. Um, it's pretty incredible. And so effects on I guess specifically sort of the heart and blood vessels you know it's they're definitely vast and so I can just begin with I guess the effects on the heart um, or maybe I'll start with the effects on the blood vessels since that's kind of uh, my area in the area where our, our lab focuses so when we exercise when we engage in cardiovascular exercise that 
obviously increases oxygen demand. Our, our tissues are more metabolically active um, and we need to therefore deliver more nutrients, more oxygen to those tissues. And so in order for that to happen, our blood vessels uh, need to dilate. And what that essentially means is that they'll increase in diameter. Um, the smooth muscle around them will relax, increasing blood flow to wherever area it is that they are dilating. And typically that will be during something like aerobic exercise if it involves all of the limbs. So if we can just use running as an example. You know, legs and arms are going to be metabolically active during, during exercise. So we need to increase blood flow to those areas. And so in order to do that, tinier resistance vessels, capillaries, things like that, they dilate and they allow blood flow to, to increase into those areas. When that happens, um, I guess in the larger vessels upstream, blood flow is going to increase and that is going to again trigger increases in, in more blood flow. So as I mentioned earlier, the endothelium is something that plays an important part in that. So when uh, there's something on the endothelium, it's known as the glycocalyx, it's essentially like this little these little hairs that sort of stick out of the endothelium, they can actually sense when blood flow increases um, and that mechanical stress on the glycocalyx will actually trigger the release of compounds like nitric oxide and so on and then those will eventually cause the smooth muscle to relax. So the combined effects um, of the autonomic nervous system activity that helps to initially dilate those blood vessels and increase blood flow and then the shear stress mediated increases in blood flow all of those things serve to increase blood flow to the areas of the body where we need it most and that shear stress actually um, is one of the main stimulus for the beneficial adaptations that we see uh, to blood vessels specifically during exercise training for instance so you know, just in general, and this is pretty much just uh, kind of well-known among all populations uh, in which this is studied, but exercise training, you know, if you take sedentary people or even maybe healthy people and put them through exercise training program, typically their blood vessel function will improve. So literally the um, ability of your blood vessel to dilate will increase. So you have improved endothelial function in response to exercise. And that's in part just due to perhaps the endothelium becoming more sensitive, also to smooth muscle function improving within those, within those blood vessels. Um, you'll see that less in, say, healthy individuals um, who typically have normal blood vessel function and in athletes and people like that. But if you take, say, people who, uh, who are older or who have, say, diagnosed cardiovascular disease or hypertension or something like that, you'll see profound increases in, in endothelial function. Um, so, you know, those results, again, kind of one of the main benefits, improving your endothelial function, which has been correlated with um, cardiovascular disease risk and a bunch of different health outcomes, including sort of like cognitive function. So a very important um, measure and one of the main things that improves with, with exercise. Um, and then regarding the heart, you know, there are several sort of what we would call classical adaptations that occur with endurance training. Um, the main one of those is going to be a stronger and larger uh, left ventricle, so something that we would call left ventricular hypertrophy. But um, I do want to distinguish because when people hear left ventricular hypertrophy, there are uh, kind of two types of left ventricular hypertrophy. One can be a pathophysiological or a concentric hypertrophy, and another is known as a physiological or eccentric hypertrophy. So with concentric hypertrophy, this is the one that I guess you would say you don't want. Um, so people with heart failure and other cardiovascular conditions would have this. Essentially in that, the inside wall of the heart sort of thickens, the ventricle becomes smaller, so the wall gets thicker and larger, but the ventricle is sort of smaller and isn't able to pump blood as effectively. 
in endurance uh, sports, so in endurance athletes and with endurance training, the left ventricle eccentric hypertrophy actually occurs. So the muscles of the wall kind of grow outward and grow stronger, and the ventricle actually gets physically larger. And what that means is that it can hold more blood, so your left ventricle ventricle volume actually increases so when your heart relaxes and fills with blood during um, the phase of the heart called diastole it actually fills with more blood and then when that happens um, that will increase your stroke volume so stroke volume is sort of um, one of these components of cardiac output the other being heart rate and a stroke volume increase just means that with each beat your heart is pumping out more blood so a larger stroke volume is one of the classical adaptations to endurance training and that's actually why you will see very well trained endurance athletes and then even very very elite endurance athletes who have those astoundingly low resting heart rates so you know you'll see like the Tour de France cyclists or something posting to have like you know a 27 resting heart rate or something like that that's due to their higher stroke volume um, at least when you look at rest because um, the equation I guess for cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. So if your stroke volume increases, your heart rate at the same cardiac output is going to go down. Um, my resting heart rate just for instance is somewhere around 35. It dips down to around 35 at night. Um, it's always been pretty low. Uh, when I'm more fit, it gets a little bit lower, but I'm not quite as kind of fit running wise as I as it used to be. Um, so increase in stroke volume sort of definitely one of the, the main adaptations um, that occurs with endurance training um, in the heart. And then in general, um, obviously just due to the effects of exercise on the heart, you know, you're going to have increased blood flow to the heart during exercise and increased oxygen demand. That will actually help to sort of strengthen and build the, the coronary circulation. Uh, the coronary circulation being sort of the smaller arteries that actually surround the heart and supply it with its own blood. So something interesting about the heart is that it you know, it supplies its own blood supply. So you would think that, well, blood fills the heart. Can't the heart just use the, the blood that fills it? But it actually needs to, to pump blood into the arteries that surround it in order to, you know, feed blood to the muscles of the heart just as it feeds sort of um, all of the other muscles in the body. Because um, you could imagine if the heart just used the blood inside it, it would kind of uh, take it away from all of the other muscles in the body. So the coronary circulation is something that also, also improves um, in response to, to exercise training and we'll get stronger with exercise. And then uh, finally is just the, the classical adaptations to, to blood pressure. So blood pressure is one of the, the main things that will decrease in response to say exercise training. It even will decrease um, post-exercise acutely. So during exercise, blood pressure will actually increase. So your systolic blood pressure will increase during exercise. Not anything to be worried about. That's just something that you know will happen due to the physiological demands. Um, Diastolic blood pressure tends to stay the same, but you know during exercise training, um, it's probably you know one of the better ways to to reduce blood pressure, and that's in particular due to um, reductions in say resting sympathetic nervous system activity. Exercise is great for that. Um, those uh, the increased ability of the blood vessels to dilate again, so the improved endothelial function um, at rest that will help to decrease blood pressure as well. And that's all just going to also sort of reduce the the load on the heart at rest. So you're going to have decreased uh, resistance within the vascular system, and that's going to place a lot less load on the heart on the left ventricle. And so. Um, while you know, I think a lot of people like to talk about how, yes, sure, aerobic exercise, you're, you're putting a lot of stress on the heart, and I'm sure this is something we'll talk about later in terms of, you know, is exercise harmful in long term to the heart? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're putting a huge stress on the heart during exercise, but the beneficial effects that are a result of training, that are, you know, 
you're at rest most of your day. You're not exercising most of your day. So I think the reductions in loads, the reductions in blood pressure, and those beneficial effects um, kind of far outweigh sort of you know the stress that's that's being placed on the heart. Um, but yeah, those are kind of you know some of the major the major adaptations that uh that occur with exercise training specifically for for the heart. Yeah, when you when you're talking about that. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. The adaptations to the blood vessels as well as the heart, um, I'm sort of trying to think of like that would easily translate to like an increase in performance as well. Like if your, if your blood vessels are easily triggered to um, dilate and deliver more blood to those working muscles, but then you also have a, a bigger heart chamber to push blood out of. And then you've got your, uh, I guess, higher blood pressure to deliver blood to the area. Not only would it then carry over to a better performance because you're delivering, you know, the the nutrients that's required in in a greater um, speed and uh, more efficiency, and then so yeah, the the performance side of things great because all runners want to perform better, they want to run faster, they want to run harder, and sort of have those adaptations go along with it. But also for health and longevity in the in the first place, like if you had a, a stronger bigger heart that's you know delivering blood around and it's just an overall more efficient system um you can easily see how it will contribute to like independent of exercise just for general health and um longevity in the long run yeah absolutely and for you know obviously the heart is kind of our focus here but like for the brain too you know during exercise brain blood flow is going to increase and you're even going to improve like the, the function of your carotid arteries that deliver blood to the brain and so brain health is probably if not heart health you know definitely the most important factor that's going to contribute to, to aging, longevity, and performance. You know, I mean, the yeah. brain, you know, is the primary performance organ. So, um, you know, the benefits there can't be can't be understated either. Unreal. All right, let's delve into these questions. First one comes in from Rach. Nice question to start with. Should She asks, should I be monitoring my heart rate during my runs and other exercises, other cardiovascular exercises, which kind of just extends, should people in general just be monitoring their heart rate when they're exercise or are there pros and cons for, for either or? Yeah, I would definitely say the short and simple answer to that would be absolutely. Um, I think that heart rate training is kind of the, it's really the only way, you know, less sophisticated I mean, measures are more sophisticated measures that are available, but really the only way to monitor the the intensity of your runs, uh, to gauge your subjective effort, and to prescribe like your different training sessions. So, really, without heart rate, you're not really able to tell whether you're hitting kind of the right intensive intensity of your exercise objectively um, to get the benefits that you're targeting. So, you know, if you really are trying to make the most out of your exercise training sessions, I think that using heart rate is definitely essential. Um, now this isn't to say I think that you need to be like glancing at your watch every every few seconds during your workout because um, that could take away from a lot of the experience um, and a lot of the, the training that you probably need to get in. Um, but if you're doing a focused session, um, which multiple sessions during the week might be, I think it's um, imperative to definitely have heart rate as a feedback to make sure you're reaching uh, the goals. So I think that heart rate could be valuable sort of for both high intensity. I think people 
often think about, oh, I need to make sure my heart rate gets high enough, but I also think that it can be valuable for the lower intensity sessions. And what I mean by that is say, if someone wants to say, go out for, make sure today is a zone two training session. So trying to make today really easy. Um, you know, you can go by some of the subjective methods. Oh, can I talk? Could I hold a conversation during this workout? Okay, then it's probably easy enough. But for the zone two training sessions, you know, you could set yourself a heart rate ceiling. So this is the top of my zone two, and I have to make sure that my heart rate doesn't go above this certain number during um, my run. So that could be kind of the goal of the session. And again, you can almost gamify this stuff in terms of I got to make sure my heart rate stays below this number uh, the entire, entire time. And that's just going to make sure that you're sort of optimizing the benefits of that particular session, which are, you know, the mitochondrial benefits or the recovery benefits, for instance. Um, so that would be a fantastic way to do that. And I think the second one, again, would be for those high intensity sessions. So to make sure, on the other hand, that you're exercising hard enough. So if you're doing a high intensity session, you need to get between 85 to 95%. Um, you know, you can calculate your heart rate beforehand and know what it needs to be between uh, during that session to make sure your high intensity set intervals at least are of sufficient intensity, but then also your recovery intervals between those higher intensity portions are low enough. So you're gonna kind of have two zones during that session. And some watches, and I think this is something that um, I need to probably start using more, but you know, there are some watches where it'll tell you your heart rate in beats per minute, but some watches are also equipped with that setting where instead of heart rate, you can sort of display what percent of your heart rate max is at. And so that might actually be a more easy and effective way to tell if you're in like the right zone. So glancing at your watch and you know, say, if you're trying to stay at 85 to 95% of your maximal heart rate during this session, make sure that number like hovers between 90 and sort of have a buffer on either side. Um, so I think that could be valuable too, rather than having a number and then maybe trying to calculate, oh, is this, is this the right number or, uh, or something like that. So short answer to that one, yes, absolutely. Heart rate is important. But I do wanna add that I think sometimes uh, something that gets not appreciated enough is the, um, the benefits of training without any sort of feedback, whether it's from a, like from a GPS watch or something like that, or a heart rate monitor or speed and pace or anything like that. I think it can be incredibly beneficial to sometimes train without this feedback because going by feel is going to help you get in touch with your body as a runner. Um, and I think that this should probably be done a few times per week. You know, maybe if it's on a long run where you're not really concerned about pace, sort of just have a run where I'm not going to say you need to run without a GPS watch because I'm not the type of person who would ever do that. I need to have, I need to have my data, but maybe press start and only press finish when you're done and don't glance at it in between. Um, I think that's extremely valuable. So, you know, afterwards you can plug it in and look at all the data, look at your heart rate, look at your pace and things like that. But I think learning to run based just on subjective effort um, and then pairing that with objective intensity afterwards is a huge skill like for runners to learn. And the way I see it, I think you should almost be able to arrive at a point where you could sort of guess what your heart rate is during a particular workout, maybe plus or minus say like five beats per minute. So you're out on a run and you could almost make a game out of this. You know, you're out on a run. Oh, what do I think my heart rate's out right now? Maybe 134 and then look at your watch and see how close you are and then sort of learn to gauge uh, based on your subjective effort what that might correspond to um, for a particular heart rate. Now that's sometimes going to change obviously based on your fitness and you know, how your heart rate is going to be at a certain pace, but I think that that's a huge sort of um, skill to learn. And being a runner, you know, it's kind of invaluable to to learn to to run by feel. I know we're all kind of obsessed with the data, um, myself included, but I think that you know definitely it's uh, 
needs to be stated that sometimes learning to run by feel and getting in touch with your body is, is super important. Yeah, I do like that you've combined those two together because the objective side, like you say, you can gamify it a little bit and you can learn a bit more about yourself and the subjective can highlight some key properties that potentially the heart rate might not do. And I think it was about like a year and a half ago, I had um, Chris Schneider on the podcast and he was mentioning heart rate and sometimes it's inaccuracies or I guess like the factors that can produce inaccuracies in heart rate. He's talking about caffeine and stress and like um, weather, humidity, like those sorts of things. Um, and so that's when I guess the subjective side of things might be more reliable. Like if you're under recovering and there's like a mismatch in your effort levels compared to your heart rate and you just stick to your heart rate and don't pay attention to your effort levels and that particular mismatch can lead to, you know, not really getting out the desired intention of that particular session. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I remember I also saw a tweet a while ago. It was from from Steve Magnus. I don't know if you know who that is. He wrote a book called The Science of Running, and he used to he was like a sub four minute miler almost in high school, and you know definitely a huge kind of coach in the running community. But he posted sometime he's sometimes against the whole data centric approach. He obviously embraces it being a running coach and science based, but he's like you know sometimes you just need to ditch the watch and whatever it's telling you and just go by feel because he's like you know if I got four hours of sleep and I had two cups of caffeine like I might be running at eight minute per mile pace which for him is very slow but my heart rate might be like 170 now am I gonna try to slow down and or like ditch the run no I'm gonna you know go as easy as I can but if you used heart rate in that situation you would be freaking out and thinking oh my gosh like you know I'm working way too hard or something like that when you're really not so definitely you know technology is a great thing but sometimes it can it can get in the way yeah is there uh, with your understanding if someone's feeling really in tune with their body and they're playing that game of effort levels and speed and thinking trying to guess what their heart rate is like based on their perceived effort levels and they're getting pretty in tune but then all of a sudden like maybe a particular week you find there's a bit of a mismatch there you find that oh, i feel like i've um i'm running quite easy but their heart rate's quite high um, is there other than caffeine and that those particular things that directly affect heart rate, are there any other tools of training or like scenarios within training that might account for that mismatch? Yeah, I mean, I think that just overall recovery is gonna be definitely a thing. So like your your kind of sympathetic activity. So if you're you know, your sympathetic system is sort of on overdrive, something that will do that is obviously caffeine, but plenty of things in life like uh, environmental stressors or life stressors can can definitely play into that. Um, so I think uh, you know while this is kind of a nebulous word, this overtraining. You know, if you're if you're in a period of overtraining or really hard training, um, that could be something that definitely will will spike your heart rate and even your effort kind of at the same uh, objective pace. So that can definitely play into it. Something like sleep deprivation. You know, you have a bad night of sleep the night before. Your heart rate's probably going to be elevated on on a run something the next day. Um, but I guess I should say too that I don't think that's like a universal thing. So something interesting that I've noticed in myself, and maybe others have had the same experience. But if I'm um, if I'm ever overly tired, say from a previous day or a previous couple of days workout, or maybe in a period of overreaching or something like that, I typically actually have a hard time getting my heart rate up. So it's almost like my body is putting a limit on how high my heart rate can get up saying like, stop, you know, don't exercise this like intensely. It's almost like restraining me a little bit. That's just kind of an interesting thing that I've, that I've observed. But traditionally you'll get, you know, if you're stressed out or think something like that, you'll have, you'll have a higher heart rate. So caffeine surely can do that. Maybe some 
for some and not others, but um, any sort of stress, you know, um, especially if you're thinking about it kind of in the, during the run um, can definitely cause that heart rate to, to spike. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Let's, let's move on. I've got a couple of questions in, I guess it's a little bit of a group uh, regarding what sort of exercise parameters might actually be like detrimental to cardiovascular health. I had Jessica asking, is there a point where running becomes detrimental, say for ultra running events? Um, Melissa was asking, does frequent high intensity efforts, um, is it detrimental to hearts? And Aiden was asking about exercise at your heart rate max or like doing that maybe too often or for too long of a duration. So what we'll do is we'll start with say ultra events, like running long distances, pushing yourself to the limit. Is that, does it come to a point where it becomes detrimental for cardiovascular health? Yeah. Yeah. Those are all uh, fantastic questions and really kind of the topic of, of a lot of like interest of many people uh, recently. So I think that, you know, there's definitely a lot of data on this, but I can definitely start off with, kind of some of my own personal points of view in this area and then I'll go into sort of some of the some of the data that are available. Um, so I think the main thing that comes to my mind at least when this quote I guess argument is brought up is that the point where running begins to become detrimental is probably like not a point that most people will ever reach. Surely, you know, from our perspectives as runners, there are a lot of people participating in these ultra marathons and marathons, but if you think about, you know, and when I say this argument, I just mean kind of among the general public, like, oh, can you exercise too much? You know, really, how many people are really training at like the level of elite marathoners or ultra marathoners? Um, it's probably very few. So, you know, the bigger problem in our society is people not getting enough exercise. Um, so typically we don't need to ar be arguing about, you know, can you get too much? Um, and not getting enough is absolutely detrimental to, to cardiovascular health. So it's kind of sometimes almost a moot point where people are like, oh, can you exercise too much? But people want to demonize all these high levels of aerobic exercise um, when very few people really will probably ever kind of encounter um, that problem. Um, sometimes it might even be used as like an excuse, you know, for people to, to not exercise because, oh, it's, you know, going to be harmful for the heart. But that's kind <laughs> of just my, my two cents there. But um, that being said, I, I definitely think that there is no doubt in my mind that sort of these extreme levels and higher intensities of aerobic exercise and competition are, are probably not the best thing for, you know, cardiovascular health optimization if we're talking about say just general health well-being and like longevity so elite marathon runners you know ultra marathon runners they're extremely fit best in the world at what they do um, running far and by running fast but they're by far you know the healthiest people in the world and I think that many of them would agree with that and many people who are aware of ultra runners and marathon runners would would agree with that obviously super fit individuals and, and very healthy in many aspects of life but it's no doubt sort of not optimal um, for performance. So if we look at um, elite endurance athletes or endurance athletes, and then we can even say ultra endurance athletes, um, compared to athletes though at, um, I guess rather non-athletes, I think most of the data and even maybe some people's personal experience will show that they do live longer. Um, you know, there actually have been studies documenting this. And so I think that it's just like, if we compare the extremes of the scenario, extreme exercisers, versus extreme sedentary or sedentary individuals, the extreme exercisers will win every time. So whether it's, you know, cardiovascular health that we're talking about or whatever parameter, you know, the extreme exercise, the extreme stress is going to be a lot better for you than zero stress. Um, absolutely. But, you know, uh, I guess even though high levels of training may be having this sort of uh, negative effect on health, as far as uh, 
you know, the lifespan and things like that go, I think there's not any data to show that, you know, you're going to live a shorter life because of all like the endurance training. Again, there's very little data uh, on that subject on, on, on either side. But I definitely don't think that these very high levels of training are as detrimental as maybe we've been led to believe. Um, but I think it's important then to differentiate between sort of the acute harms versus the chronic harms. By that I mean, you know, what happens during an ultra marathon and then sort of maybe in the few days after versus what compounds over years and years and years of training. So yes, does running a marathon, ultra marathon, put an insane amount of stress on the heart and the cardiovascular system? Yes. Um, but just like any stress, if you allow the body to adapt and enough time to recover, then you can eliminate the damage and essentially return to baseline. Now, the further the distance, the longer that that um, recovery period likely needs to be. You know, a marathon, maybe take a week off, ultra marathon, maybe two weeks off or two weeks of very light uh, intensity activity. But essentially, I think there's a pretty good, you know, physiology and biology to, to show that if you, again, allow enough time to recover, things are going to go back down to normal. So specifically, say during an ultra marathon, if you think about, you know, what would happen, I can say, you know, ultra marathon and up or marathon and up, you know, the cardiac stress is high. And so you're going to have cardiac damage that occurs. So inflammation is going to increase um, something called like a C-reactive protein will increase in the heart. And then something called cardiac troponin T is typically elevated after like a long distance endurance event. And that's like a marker of cardiovascular damage. It's actually elevated also like after a heart attack. So there have kind of been these studies showing that like your troponin T levels will get as high after a marathon as they do after a heart attack. And you know, that'll of course appear in some like Healthline magazine and people will freak out. Um, but again, if you measure these markers a few days out, a week out after this marathon, then they're gonna go back down to baseline. And so that's essentially, you know, assuming that this damage has sort of been um, reduced, at least for the time being, after that sort of acute event. And I don't think that there is much evidence or I would, you know, be hard pressed to believe that runners have higher levels of sort of these markers at rest than healthy individuals, um, sedentary individuals or kind of exercise regularly exercising individuals. Um, so it's really just in the context of an acute exercise bout that a lot of these damage markers for uh, cardiac muscle and things like that are elevated. Um, however, there have been some, some data in veteran regular endurance athletes providing some evidence that the harm um, from maybe decades of this high level endurance activity might actually um, occur. And so this would go to say that that acute damage, although it may resolve after those um, activities, over time, you know, they, it may be causing small damage each time, say you, you run a very hard intensity event or just year over year over year, this damage may begin to actually accumulate. Um, and so, interestingly enough, this has actually kind of been given like a term at least by a couple of these um, cardiovascular physiologists and actually one of them I think is MD or both of them, they're cardiologists. So they call this uh, Pheidippides cardiomyopathy. So Pheidippides being the, the Greek kind of uh, runner who ran the first quote unquote marathon to deliver the message to, uh, to Athens and then he like died after he finished the race. That's kind of the, the Greek myth rather, you know, um, and sort of that's kind of where the modern marathon came from. So this Pheidippides cardiomyopathy 
or like this cardiac overuse injury is something that they talk about that involves changes in the heart, things like uh, fibrosis of heart tissue, scarring of the heart, uh, coronary artery, like calcification, so the buildup of kind of calcium in coronary arteries, and maybe uh, enhanced development of atherosclerosis, so like hardening of the arteries, um, and heart arrhythmias. So some of these have been documented in uh, like veteran endurance athletes, and the risks and uh, outcomes might actually be the result of high levels of the endurance training. Um, they actually also say that this may be more apparent in individuals 45 years or older, so they may be more susceptible to like the damage, so aging kind of might make one more susceptible to some of these damages actually um, in response to endurance training. Maybe that's a result of us being like less likely to recover um, from exercise. We know that kind of that occurs at least in the musculature with aging for sure, you know, you need more recovery time, more warm-up time, things like that. Um, but most of these observations, again, um, are in sort of veteran endurance athletes who have been doing this for decades. Again, maybe most of your listeners have, and you know, even myself, I've been at this for for a couple decades. So, somewhat concerning. Obviously, you see you see things like this, and you say, "Oh, am I am I actually doing damage to my heart?" And you know, even in asymptomatic people, who knows kind of what could be going on under the hood. But again, you know, this isn't to try to scare anybody. But you know that these data do exist. But since endurance athletes sort of represent a very tiny <laughs> uh, percentage of the population, you know, there's not there's not a lot available. Um, I will mention too that just because I'm sure some of your listeners um, are females and not all males, but most of this data has kind of been collected in males where they'll show like fibrosis of the heart or maybe enhanced calcification. There's a lot of study in male veteran endurance athletes who are older, um, not a lot of actual data kind of kind of in females. Um, so I guess uh, that was the long-winded answer and so the short-winded answer um, to that is Maybe we don't know. Um, I think that there is probably some genetic variability to this and that some individuals may be more susceptible to these effects and maybe they would have those, those heart conditions um, regardless. You know, you hear the one-off story every now and then of somebody dying during, during a marathon or dying during an ultra marathon. They just kind of drop dead of like, like a heart attack or something. But if you think about the total amount of people who are engaging in those events, the percentage of that one person over the millions and millions and millions of people who are engaging in these events per year, um, you know, it would it would um, assume that your risk is, is very low participating in these events. Um, and in general, people tend to be in, in very good health, even those who participate in these high extreme levels. So I think that kind of caution needs to be warranted, but we definitely need to learn more about sort of the, the chronic effects of like an ultra marathon and things like that. Because um, too much over time, some is good, you know, obviously running is great superior cardiovascular health, but, but over time, you know, it could, could potentially lead to some of the negative cardiovascular adaptations that I, that I've listed earlier. Yeah. One, one of the things that I highlight on the podcast a lot is you don't get stronger during your exercise. You get stronger after your exercise when you recover adequately. And I guess, you know, you talk about extreme examples of running ultras for decades and that longitudinal sort of chronic adaptations that might happen um but the acute side when you run an ultra event and you talk about the maybe inflammation of the heart making sure that you know you undergo that adequate recovery afterwards and don't overstrain overtrain you know chronically um for that car that cardiac health seems to be the same for those sort of principles making sure that you know you will strain your body sometimes straining your body is fine provided that you know you you have that bout of recovery adequate recovery afterwards um so in that acute setting you'd, you'd probably agree with that this just follows those same principles 
Yes, certainly, certainly. And I think that, you know, we do need to differentiate between the, the acute and chronic, but similar to how we look at the benefits of acute exercise, if you repeat them over time, they're going to add up to these beneficial adaptations. I think the same can, can occur with the harms. So sure, we can say if we allow enough recovery, like I mentioned before, a lot of these damage markers, inflammation will go back down to baseline. But the acute insult, I definitely think, you know, may not be completely erased, say, every time maybe somebody engages in one of these activities or, you know, there's there's definitely compounding effects similar to how, yes, um, you know, maybe this is a poor analogy, but it's like if you go and eat a, a Big Mac and a large fry at McDonald's, yeah, you're acutely, you know, it's not maybe, maybe that bad, but if you keep eating a Big Mac every single day, you're eventually kind of going to get uh, the negative effects of that, of that Big Mac. But uh, I'd say running a marathon is a lot healthier than, than eating a Big Mac, so. <laughs> um, how about like for like within one session, if someone said, I want to have a really intense session, I want to train like close to my heart rate max and I um, want to sustain that for intervals or try and see how long I can withstand this heart rate max intensity threshold is how is that for your heart? Because, you know, most high intense efforts get like, you know, 90% heart rate max, 95. But if you're fully maxing out, is that detrimental for heart health yeah i would say um i would say no at again you know context being the duration sort of 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 the exercise bout so i think you know it's our heart is designed to tolerate these extremely high workloads for i think a moderate amount of time so probably up to around like 60 minutes or so of a high intensity interval session you know it's it's kind of designed and i say put design in quotes but you know designed to tolerate these extremely high workloads for a long period of time so i think we need to give first you know our heart a little bit of credit for for what it's capable of so you know, when we exercise, you know, our heart, it's able to increase its workload by, you know, six or seven times or more. Our heart rate can get up to, you know, 200 beats per minute plus. Um, so increasing cardiac output, pumping more blood, beating faster. Um, and so it can do this, but obviously similar to, maybe not as similar to an endurance event where you're exercising at a much lower heart rate, but the heart again is just, you know, it's, it's built for this and it's able to increase its um, activity to that level. Um, this does cause uh, some of like the, the micro tears and the volume overload and a little bit of damage to the heart as natural. You know, the same occurs in skeletal muscle. You know, you do a weightlifting session, you, you cause damage, damage and tears to, to the muscle that eventually get repaired. Um, so is this necessarily detrimental? I don't think so. Again, given that you sort of work within the bounds of the duration of that kind of maybe capping an interval session at like 50 to 60 minutes or something like that and aren't exercising at that that high heart rate for such a long time. I do think that many people would find it hard to exercise for that amount of time um, at that high intensity. So I think that there's sort of like an internal kind of control system anyway that would prevent us from, from exercising for that long. Um, but I think it, again, comes down to allowing for like adequate recovery from, from the high intensity sessions, making sure that they're not too frequent. Um, and again, I think as far as research has gone in this area, there's, there's not a lot of uh, data to say whether performing too much high intensity too often will cause some heart damage. Um, I do think I've seen like one study maybe in rodents where they did them under a very rigorous kind of like four days per week high intensity interval training, and they found that acutely that impaired cardiac function. So in the short term, their heart actually was like became quote what you would say maybe tired like it really just reduced heart function like in the short term but again even after a week kind of that 
reduction went back to, to baseline and it was reversed. So again, I think it's all about just allowing for that, that recovery time. You know, if you're doing HIIT every single day, yeah, you're not allowing your heart enough time to recover. Just like the brain and muscles, the heart has to recover. Um, and I think one thing that makes the heart different and that we need to worry about when exercising at those high intensities is that, yes, yeah, so, you know, if you do string together too many high training sessions for way too long or too many years or really stress it out too much that some of that damage can be lasting um, and won't you know be fully fully recovered from um, as far as uh, some of the data like in humans you know they've done some kind of overtraining very high intensity interval stuff they show that it can can impair mitochondrial function so not necessarily heart function although you know mitochondrial function and it's going to kind of relate to, to heart function but um, nothing to say to look at like you know whether your ECG parameters are affected by too much high intensity training or, or anything like that. Um, so again, I think exercising at a high intensity, um, while some of the changes acutely, those damaging changes that we've talked about may not be benign, um, I think that potentially, again, if you don't allow enough recovery, it could lead to potentially harmful, harmful effects. But um, I think probably less harmful if we're going to talk about maybe the the relative risks of say ultra endurance activity for for many 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 years or hit say maybe twice a week for many many years i would say that probably hit in those high intensity work sessions are perhaps even like uh, less detrimental just because you're you're undergoing that stress for very brief periods of time yeah and <laughs> Like you say, within that one session, if someone said, I want to train the heart rate max and, you know, give it my all, it's, it seems like it's going to be the rest of the body, like the muscle skeletal system that's going to let you down before you even tap into something that might into ranges or durations that might damage the heart. And again, with the, the frequency of high intensity, I've done enough podcast episodes for the runners out there to have the right intensity distribution throughout their, their week. So if they're going out in high intensity training every single day, they, they know they're doing something wrong um, from the, <laughs> they need from to the injury side of point anyway. Yes. Right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very hard to do even, you know, for a couple of weeks, you might be able to maintain it. I mean, you know, there are, there are times where I'm sure I've, I've pushed myself hard for a couple of weeks and probably done way too many high intensity training sessions, but eventually, you know, your body, it, it tells you what's up and it, it'll kind of you know, restrain you. But I do think, I do think it's easier to outwork the heart than it is kind of the muscular system because the heart is so, you know, it's so resilient and it recovers so fast, you know, um, you know, the muscles, you know, you, you know, got to replenish your glycogen and you can risk like pulling a muscle, but there's no kind of like a acute heart like injury, you know, you don't pull a heart muscle or like pull a ventricle. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, it's easy. It could be easier to stress the heart and that, which is why we need to be so careful and just like protecting it with these recovery sessions and these lower intensity sessions and sort of being mindful of that. Um, because it's not something we often consider like, Oh, allowing the heart to recover and the sympathetic nervous system to have a rest, um, as well as, um, you know, the muscular system. And I think that's somewhere where like, something like sleep becomes vitally important. Obviously everybody knows, you know, how important sleep is, but for like the heart and just your sympathetic nervous system to have a rest, you know, that sleep time is, is crucial. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, 
who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.